Paul, do you know what's encouraging? Knowing that we're not the only white guys working to be anti-racist, anti-sexist, and to understand our role in creating equity as we do here on The Modern White Man. I mean, we always knew that, right? But our guest today is really the epitome of that. I mean, just by the title of his book, A White Guy Confronting Racism, you can see why we were thrilled to have Jared Carroll on as a guest. And it was just a really fantastic conversation with Jared in just our short under 60 minutes. Man, he gave me a lot of takeaways and it's almost motivating of what to work towards. You know, he's been doing this for so long and you can just see kind of his level of knowledge and empathy and everything. And yeah, I I just feel pretty encouraged after that conversation. Yeah, agreed. I mean, our first couple interviews with Becky and, and Ellie were amazing. Don't get me wrong, but this one just felt different. We had this kind of connection, right, because of our identities. And I, I really I, I don't think that was any like any coincidence. I really feel like it was inspiring and encouraging and motivating because we all, you know, kind of share this vision of what white men can do. And so it just really speaks to the importance of us as white folks and white men coming together and having these conversations Totally. Yeah, I just, yeah, I took so much away from it, like you said. It's crazy that we've had three of these guests now. And even after three, I'm like, wow, I'm lear- I've am i learned so much from all three. And I totally agree with you. And it really shows kind of the importance of how we say, you know, the importance of having a space for white men to learn together yep. and to go through our struggles together. You know, we want to take away the burden from marginalized folks to do work that we can do ourselves, right? And the importance of those cross identity relationships, because you have a whole different perspective and a whole different Mm -hmm. set of learnings. So even in our first three, we've had a little taste of all of it so far and there are endless amount of, you know, identities that are out there that we can still continue to connect with and learn with and continue to have this space also as white men doing it too, to be able to have those kind of unique conversations. It's we're off to a strong start, I'd say, with our three. I mean, it's just been a great experience. Yeah, no doubt. And really what we what we were doing, what it felt like when we were talking to Jared was was really changing the culture, the culture that has been created by white mm-hmm. folks and white men. You know, that's something that we're, we're blind to quite a bit is uh, with that white privilege that we have a culture, that we've created a culture, and especially when it comes to being anti-racist. And I think what we did was really reinforce the culture that we want to create with other white folks. And so I think that's what was really encouraging and hopeful and inspiring. So, yeah, I'm excited for you all to, to listen to it. Let me just introduce Carol before we jump in. Carol. Oh, my gosh. It, Mr. Let me just Carol. In- is what you, we should call him. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just introduce Jared before we jump into the episode. So Jared Carroll is the head of product experience at Translator. For more than 20 years, he has been a DEI consultant, public speaker, and facilitator, specializing in guiding white people to confront racism and be unapologetic anti-racist. Jared has extensive experience in Fortune 500 companies, facilitating difficult conversations and coaching executives to be impactful storytellers. His first book, A White Guy Confronting Racism, An Invitation to Reflect and Act, was released in November 2021. An avid reader, accomplished musician, and active meditator, he lives with his partner and teenage twins in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, so as you can see, again, lucky to get Jared on The Modern White Man as a guest. I think you are all really going to enjoy this conversation and have a lot of takeaways as Paul and I did. 
So without further ado, let's hop into it. Here is our conversation with Jared Carroll. We are pleased to be joined by Jared Carroll. Jared, welcome to the show. Ken, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Good to see you, Paul. Good to see you, Ken. Happy to be on. Thank you so much. Great to see you as well. And, you know, as we've explained to our listeners at nauseum, and as we've talked about with you as well, you know, one of the core purposes of the modern white man is to do individual identity work, to be anti-racist and anti-sexist, and to ultimately create mutually respectful relationships with people who have different identities. And one of the many takeaways that we have had on our journey is as we do that identity work, the importance of having support from others of the same identity, you know, to bring our inevitable questions, doubts, and fears to. So we don't burden marginalized folks with those things that we can learn and work through ourselves. So it's really energizing to talk to another white man confronting racism who has dedicated his career to being anti-racist and who specializes in guiding other white people to also confront racism and be unapologetic anti-racists. I love that. So you have years of experience doing this work as a professional speaker, a panel moderator, leadership coach, facilitator of difficult conversations, and of course, as an author of the book, A White Guy Confronting Racism. So we are really excited to be joined by you, and we are looking forward to the conversation. And I think to start, Jared, can you just explain a bit about your path that led you to devoting your career to anti-racism and equity work? Yeah, well, thank you for that uh, warm introduction. Uh, I appreciate you and, uh, you know, be having this opportunity to to speak with the two of you on on these topics. And as you said, you know, white folks need to be talking about this with other white folks uh, more, more often and, and challenging each other, supporting each other, inviting each other into these conversations. So my my journey actually began uh, and I, you know, I say this in the in the book and I, you know, it's a cursory Google search of me will find articles, me writing about this, but it actually began with my father who was a gay man and who died of AIDS in, in 2000. And so at the time I was, uh, I was 27 and I was parking cars and I was surfing. I was living in San Diego. It was a pretty good life, but uh, I hadn't really kind of stepped into any sort of, you know, personal transformation work, let alone kind of working with other people. <clears throat> and then when my father died, I was kind of like, all right, I no longer want to be that guy. I didn't want to be that guy who didn't care, didn't know, uh, wasn't curious, didn't have compassion, empathy for other people, you know, had this very provincial kind of narrow, narrow social circles and mindsets. And so, you know, it, it took, you know, the death of my father, you know, to kind of, kind of almost like slap me around the, you know, upside the head and say, all right, there's more, there's more to do and more to be in this world. And so I, you know, I moved up to San Francisco, I started teaching and it was really coming up into uh, both the mindset that was shifting in me, but also the with whom and where I was surrounding myself, uh, self, uh, politically, culturally, socially, communally. Uh, I just really leaned into like, what do I not know? Um, and so that was the beginning. And it started kind of with the LGBT community and, you know, that you know, scene from kind of my dad. But what I... What I kind of soon realized, and my dad had been trying to teach me this for, you know, for years, but it started to click. It's like, yes, the LGBT community has its own challenges and they're different from the black community, which is different from the Native American. You know, they're, they're, I don't want to trivialize them and say, hey, it's all the same. 
what I did uh, learn quickly and has been the core of you know my worldview ever since is that a marginalization and an oppression are are similar in that you're marginalized and oppressed because of who you are that I as a white man as a straight white man as a straight cis white man had never had to face and so I started to really be curious about other people and other situations and I started to I was a teacher for about 12 years which included this overlap of speaking and working with different groups and then the last I'd say 8 years or so have really been in you know, in corporate spaces, mostly um, doing the work with primarily with other white folks, but not not exclusively. But yeah, that's kind of where I found like, who needs to hear what I have to say the most? And it's been mostly white folks. So anyway, that's the, uh, I don't know, the two minute, three minute version of my of my life in the last. That is is a great, (laughs) succinct uh, two minute life explanation. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. So one of our first questions is kind of honing in on your book title and just would love for you to break it down. So a white guy confronting racism, it seems very simple, short sentence, but there's a lot packed into that. So just, you know, could you break down those terms in your own words? Just, you know, starting with the white guy, what's your experience been being a white guy coming to terms with that identity? And then what does confronting racism look like for you? Yeah, great question, uh, Paul. And, you know, I'm tempted not not to I'm tempted to actually read from the acknowledgments in in my book because a it it captures it pretty succinctly and b it gives credit to a few people that I think I just want to you know name them uh, just because that's part of what this work is about is right giving credit mm. so if you if you'll if you don't mind I'll start with this and then we can unpack it a little bit afterwards so I say in the acknowledgments uh, my name is on the cover of this book but I could not have written it without the guidance and support of many people. The original title of this book was A White Guy Talking About Race and Other Stuff That Matters. Mm-hmm. Naomi Raquel Enright, you asked me, aren't you really talking about racism, not race? Mm-hmm. Of course I was. That shifted immensely how I thought of what this book could become. Not long after that, Steve Mudd, you asked me, are you just talking about racism or are you confronting racism? Damn right I'm confronting it. (laughs) Confronting racism not only became part of the title, but shaped the entire structure and flow of the book. Kayla Lee, the subtitle of this book, which is an invitation to reflect and act, came from a LinkedIn message you sent me at the beginning of 2021. What you share is an invitation for reflection and or action, which is exactly what I always intend to do. Naomi, Steve, and Kayla, I am very grateful for these contributions that have helped shape my thinking on how I went about writing this book. And so I I share that because I think it captures the essence of so many things. One, this is, you know, I'm one person, you know, Ken, you're one person, Paul, you're one person, but we're doing this work together. So yes, we have our individual journeys, paths, responsibilities, opportunities to change, you know dynamics and shift cultures, and we do it together. And even just the, the the little shifts of thinking can be instrumental, right? Like, you know, sometimes like, oh, I just wrote a post or something. But how much does it really change? Well, maybe it doesn't change the world, but if it shifts one person's thinking just a little bit, that can be really powerful. And so that's what, that's what I've learned. And so, you know, this idea of confronting, you know, I think confrontation or, you know, being confrontational kind of almost has like a 
an aggressive or a negative connotation and it, and it can be and it, it often is but for me it's not necessarily about that it's not it's not a commentary on the on the tone it's a commentary on the doing it or not so it's when i see something when i observe what's going on in a particular in a professional sense in a workplace or in a community or in a team or when i see what's going on in the news and i want to talk to my kids about it or when i hear what's going on at my kid's school around these things like confronting it doesn't have to mean like oh, i'm going to come and kick your ass cuz you're racist right it's like confronting means Something's not right, and I know what it is, and I'm going to do whatever I can in my sphere of influence to at least, at the very least, uh, bring it up and have a conversation and do what I can to, to change the dynamic and challenge people to be part of the conversation. So that's kind of what I mean by, you know, confronting uh, racism. And I think, you know, Paul, the other part of your question around, you know, a white guy, I kind of like the the casualness of it, like I'm not a white man, I, you know, I'm not a white professional, a, you know, but like a white guy, like, yeah, I'm just a white guy. Right. So almost like this, like, yeah, I could, and I have, I did for many years of my life, just like be a white guy who doesn't give a crap. But now I'm a, a white guy who actually does and I'm, and I'm doing something about it. So I think in a way it's like that kind of call to like other white guys and white women and white non-binary folks and, you know, everyone how do we see our, I don't know, kind of just nor normalness as not normal or as, as one representation of normal? And how do we step in to using our power and our influence to, to make change? I really like how the, you know, the, the subtitles about invitation. You know, one thing that I've, that I feel like is a tension within, you know, especially activist circles is we don't have time to invite people, right? Like mm -hmm. people are dying, right? And, we can't be like, hey, if you're interested, why don't you get involved in anti-racism, right? It's, no, we need you involved because people are dying every day. I mean, we saw it over the weekend in Buffalo. Yeah. So how do yeah. you, but at the same time, we know that invitation is going to work better, right? To bring people into this work, which will naturally be you know, uncomfortable. So how do you balance that sort of sense of urgency, which is a white supremacy characteristic, as we know, and also at the same time, patience with, with people? Yeah. Great question. And, you know, if we have about 13, 14 hours, I think we'll, we'll get to <laughs> you know, the, the crux of it. I think lang the, way we, uh, we, the way we use language and the, the narrowness in which we interpret language can sometimes uh, be limiting in these discussions. And so, for example, like as I said earlier, confront, you know, confronting, we think of confronting as, as aggressive, as angry, as violent and sometimes it is, but confronting just means confronting. So similar with invitation, we think of invitations like, yeah, would you like to buy some Girl Scout cookies? You know, like we think of it as weak or as, uh, yeah. you know, as uh, whatever, not urgent enough. And it can be, and it, and you know, it is in some cases, but I think we can shift the way we use that. So when I say an invitation, it actually it shapes my whole worldview and, and my and my view around this work specifically. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to come in as a white guy or really as any guy or any person, right? And say, here's what you need to do. Here's what, you know, if you do this, you're great. And if you don't do this, you're bad and vice versa, right? Like that's just not my approach, just, you know, my disposition. And so I think the invitation comes with an invitation. Yes. So if you're, if you, when you're ready, let's do this. 
And at whatever stage you're ready in whatever uh, context, whatever community, whatever fluency level you're at, like I'm inviting you, but I'm also challenging you. So invitation doesn't mean, you know, kind of kumbaya. It means, hey, this is a serious thing that we all need to be talking about. And I'm going to call you into this conversation and I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you, but I'm also going to support you because the whole reason why people aren't having this conversation, especially white people, is because they don't know how. Well, not maybe not the whole reason, but a, a big reason, right? So if I come in and say, you don't know how, and you're an idiot, and you're horrible, and you're upholding white supremacy, and what are they going to do? Hmm. Are they going to go, oh, you're right. Let me go read 100 books by next Friday. Like, no, they're going to go, okay, screw you, and they're going to keep doing what they're doing. And so when I say invitation – it's bringing people into the conversation who perhaps wouldn't otherwise be in the conversation. I think it's important too. What I like about that is it gives the power to the individuals. What I mean by that is like, you know, it's, it, they're like, okay, yeah, I am opting into this. I, I want to work on this. I think it's important when we had our, our last guest who one of her big things is like, you can't order people to, be compassionate. You can't order people mm-hmm. in a million presentations to think <laughs> a certain way or act a certain way. It really has to be a way that's inviting. So invitation, right? To like give that sense of almost like power or choice, which I think is, is I agree with you. I think is vital for, for this work. Yeah. And something I say, and I say this in the book too, like I think sometimes and this isn't just true of white people, but in whatever the topic is, we think that we are the only one, you know, so I wrote, okay, so I wrote a book. Great. Awesome. You know, nice job, Jared. You wrote a book, You're, but I'm one voice in, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of voices that are, that are doing this work. And most of them appropriately, you know, are not white. They're, they're black folks or other folks of color. Right. And so I think the, the diversity of approaches is, is important. So I'm not saying everyone should do this, or if someone else is a little more aggressive or a little mm. more kind of, you know, hard hitting, mm. great. We need that. Mm. Right. So it's not like this is my, um, you know, prescription that I'm, that I'm, I'm saying this is what works for me and I've seen it work for other people. And this is the way that I've found to be impactful and to change hearts, change minds, change how people interact with each other. And so I think sometimes, you know, if I'm if I'm new to this work and like, oh, I read, you know, you hear like, a, for example, I'll just bring in uh, like Robin D'Angelo, White Fragility, right? She gets a lot of criticism for that book. And some of it I think is, is legit and valid. But I think sometimes people, the reason uh, it gets so much criticism is if I'm a new, new, a white person new to the anti-racism kind of conversation, I've heard of that book and I go and I read it and I go, wow, that was a great book. And then that's it. So I think that my, you know, reading white fragility is the answer. And it's one slice of approach of some framing that's helpful, but it's not the answer. And so that's why I'll emphasize all the time, like read, read all the time about all kinds of stuff from all kinds of people. So that when you do read, you know, a book like white fragility, you're like, yeah, okay, that's cool. But it's not your only approach. So I think that's part of the challenge as well. Yeah. And you, you know, with your work, you, you mentioned as well that you're starting to do a lot of work with corporations on the corporate side and 
something that Paul and I frame up a lot is the impact that we can make in the workplace. And as future leaders or, you know, leaders today, we even, you know, redefining leadership, what equitable leaders can be. And so we're we're curious, what has been your experience like coaching white folks to be (laughs) anti-racist, especially leaders in these corporate or organizations uh, settings? What works to engage them in anti-racism work and what doesn't work? Yeah. Great question. And, you know, every person is different, but there are themes, there are trends that I've seen. And, you know, anyone else who who does this work would be able to comment on them as well. What what works for me is kind of a foundation of narrative. So, you know, I was I used to be a writing teacher. Um, I'm obviously a writer. So I think in stories, I think in narratives, both my own, other people's communities, history, right? Like, how are narratives shaped by whom, for what purposes? Are they malicious? Are they ignorant? Are they a little of both? Um, are they amplifying voices? Are they centering, you know, X pers- uh, perspectives over Y perspectives? All these questions around narrative. So when I work with, you know, individual white folks, for the most part, they're, they're leaning in at least a little bit or else they, you know, it, I don't have people where they're like, you know, well, yeah, my, my boss told me to come and work with you. Now it's like, there's some sort of interest or, or something, right? So they're at least leaning in. Now that doesn't mean they're fluent or that they have a clue. So I talk about, you know, looking at it from their perspective around what do they not know and why, and what are, what have been the conditions under which they have been able to not know for so long and why is it, you know, Partly their own doing, partly their upbringing, partly their privilege, you know, all these facts. So, yes, we talk about uh, systems of oppression and historical inequity and marginalization and, you know, all these things. They People do need that education, frankly. And I think a lot of times uh, anti-racist folks can can stop, you know, can just do that. But if you think about it, if I'm a, I don't know, let's say a 55-year-old white executive who's, you know, full of privilege, full of, you know, lack of fluency around these issues, like just telling me about them isn't going to change me. It's part of it. It's necessary. But so I focus on, all right, you know, again, like I'm going to invite you. How can we shape your story and emphasize vulnerability, emphasize empathy, emphasize um you know, being accessible to people, if you're going to, because a lot of folks will say, well, yeah, I've never done this before. So I don't know, you know, people are going to, you know, trust me, believe me, uh, you know, I'm going to say the wrong thing. You know, all the things that white folks say, it's kind of exacerbated at the executive level. So I, you know, it's like, hey, I get it. And is that discomfort more important than the black folks and other folks of color being subjected to racism every day of their lives? So again, it's this yin yang. If I if I you know was an artist, I'd draw it. I'd draw you a yin yang symbol of challenging and supporting, mm. inviting, and uh, I don't know, expecting people to do something. So I found that that really building a relationship, like, hey, I'm a white guy too, and not saying you know you're an idiot because you're white and you know you're upholding white supremacy. So we are upholding white supremacy. Here's what we can and should be doing about it, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of building that relationship. That's been a huge, a huge growth relationship. item for me in this process is 
really finding that humanity in everyone and the mm-hmm. way that I now see it as every single person has had these hierarchies of value and worth instilled in us that has been a part of the society forever and we're all susceptible to it. And the word we use and our listeners know we use all the time is bamboozled. And we've all been bamboozled. <laughs> like we've all been bamboozled yeah. in this. Yeah. And so we're all, you know, I know white people and white men specifically have a hard time saying this, which makes sense because it's not, you know, you don't want to come across as saying like, oh, as white men, we have it really hard too. But that's not the point. The point is like, we all need to recognize that we all have had this instilled in us against our will. Frankly, we mm-hmm. all have these ideas that we have to break down and that's really hard. And, and to see the humanity in every mm-hmm. single person and white men as well, and to show that compassion and have that compassion for others has been very helpful for me in working with other white folks in particular. Yeah. Can you, and you there's another layer of why that's so important is it's relieving the burden the emotional burden, the burden of education from black folks. So if I'm a black person listening to this, I might be going like, I'm not expanding my energy doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is totally fair. Yeah. But I'm not black. You're not black. Paul's not black. Right. So in a way, not in a way, like we, I would say we, we, we need to be doing that even more so because black people may not, and often do not have the energy or the bandwidth to to want or the you know the disposition to put forth that that energy, right? So when you talk about privilege, right, more privilege equals less energy. So if I have more privilege and I don't have to think about these things, yeah, I've got stresses, mm-hmm. I've got whatever you know, kids and economics and you know whatever whatever I've got going on, right? So we all have our stressors, right? But what is the level of energy I don't have to expend worrying about? if I'm going to get shot in the grocery store because I'm black. Yeah. 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 That's, that's what I was thinking a lot about as you're talking about, you know, coaching white folks and, and even, you know, Ken and I talk a lot about like, what, what are some specific roles we can play as white men in this work? And maybe we, we wouldn't formally be quote unquote coaching executives in the workplace, but we can still have those conversations. Totally. And yeah. And the things that you're talking about, like I'm thinking about how do you, in a way, sell this to the white male executive, what's in it for him? Mm-hmm. And how do you show compassion and empathy? And how do you navigate some of that denial and fragility? And as, as you're, as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, gosh, if I was a person of color, oof, I would not have the emotional energy or bandwidth like you're talking about. And it's even hard enough for me as it is as a white guy, you know, with that bandwidth. But to your point, that is the way that we can relieve the burden or not even have to put someone of color in that position totally. where they feel forced to because no one else is stepping up. Well, and the other thing with storytelling, you know, that I emphasized a few minutes ago is I use my story very intentionally and deliberately for all kinds of reasons, but in the context of working with other white folks, especially executives to help them understand, not like, look at me, you could be like me someday. I'm all woke. Not that vibe, but like, I know what you're, I know what you're feeling. Cause I, I used to feel that way. I used to mm-hmm. feel like I didn't know that I, it wasn't really my place to care, that it didn't matter to me, that it didn't affect me because I didn't have proximity to, you know, to blackness. Yeah. Right. And as a kid, even as a, co- you know, I was a college athlete and, you know, the whole, like, it just wasn't my world. And so, 
you know, we talk about gaslighting, right? Which is basically saying, you know, what you said or what you believe isn't true, right? Why do we, why do white folks do that? Well, because we don't know very many, if any, black folks. And so we hear these stories, whether it's a personal story from someone we know or work with, you know, not super well, like, like we're friends or anything, or if it's just a, you know, whatever on the news, it's so easy to dismiss it because it's not our experience. And we have the privilege of not caring. And so one thing I, I kind of bring like a mindfulness kind of Buddhist perspective into this. And recently I've been reading a lot of books and articles and different, you know, different things by black folks who are, in, who are, you know, who are in the mindfulness communities, in Buddhist communities, and sometimes, you know, queer black folks, right? So with intersectional marginalized identities. And there's a book called Radical Dharma, that was written by uh, Angel Kyoto Williams and, and Lama Rod Owens. And there was a third author and I forgot her name. But in one of the pieces, they talked about this idea of like white folks, we don't even realize like what we're being cut off from, from love, from humanity, from relationships, from collaboration, from opportunities. And you might say, oh, well, that's no big deal. And that's the thing is we think it's no big deal. And yeah, do we cope and do we get by and are we fine? Yeah. But at what cost? Right? So then it becomes like this annoying thing, like, oh, people talking about race all the time. It's like, okay, but you're still having to deal with it. What if we shifted and you dealt with, you know, as Resma Menicum says, you know, Minneapolis, right? Says, you know, it's either gonna be clean pain or dirty pain. So if you're gonna live in the dirty pain, it's gonna be just it's just it's gonna suck. The clean pain's gonna suck too, but it's gonna it's gonna suck less. And it's going to be more impactful for, for the individual and for the community moving through that and having these conversations. And so I think, that does that work with every executive? No, but it plants a seed of different ways to think about this work. Yeah, it's so funny. Resma came to mind immediately as you're talking about that. Yeah, he's and awesome. He talks a lot about how trauma, it loses its context over time and because you know, trauma normalizes into, you know, culture and personality traits. And what looks like mm -hmm. this is just an idiosyncrasy is actually a result of trauma. And as you're talking, I couldn't help but think, you know, when are times when I feel anxious or depressed? And, and I don't know why. So I just attribute it to something, right? Oh, I'm work is hard, or I'm not making as much money as I want to, or the pandemic, I'm just like throwing out random, this could be why or that could be why, when in fact, it really could be tied to white supremacy and it's harm it's harm on me and how it's made me feel disconnected from other human beings and the dehumanization mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. i just literally had that thought in my mind like wow depression even in general has lost its context and i've never really considered it to be when i feel that way to be connected to how racism has harmed me as an individual yeah or really communities in general of yeah I, I love what you were sharing there, Paul. And, you know, here's one of the, maybe you two get it as well, because I get it, like this idea of, you know, white folks centering themselves in the anti-racism conversation. And I think it's it's more nuanced than it might first, you know, uh, initially appear. And I think, you know, when we talk about centering, when it's like, oh, look at me, my feeling, or like performative allyship, or you know, white tears, and you know, all these phenomena that that do happen, and those are real concerns, and they should be addressed and and you know, talked about and and uh, discussed. And I know, and you probably do too, because I've been on 
podcasts and conversations like this with other white folks, like, oh, here are three white, you know, people centering whiteness again. That's not what we need. It's like, well, wait a second. In a way, and Resma talks about this too, right? We have to center whiteness enough to talk about whiteness because that's what whiteness is and does is it's like this just amorphous thing that people don't even or, or claim to not even know about. So if we don't center that as a, as a topic of conversation, how do we actually deconstruct it and dismantle yeah. it? And so I get the, you know, the criticism and I think often it's warranted and then sometimes it's actually not. Mm-hmm. And I think I've gotten to a place where I'm comfortable enough, not that I'm, you know, mistake proof or you know, never, never kind of go in the wrong, the wrong way. But I think I'm comfortable. Like I know the value in this work for me and like having conversations like this with the two of you and other white folks who are committed and invested in this work. And it's needed because I'm trying to remember who said this to me, a friend, you know, a couple of years ago, she's like, there are a lot of white people that just genuinely do not know what the hell is going on. They need support. They need education because they just do not get it. And they're harming people every day. So if this podcast, I don't know how many it reaches, you know, four, five, six million, right? At yeah, least. About, right? about that. <laughs> yeah. On a moderate so, episode. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Moderate. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll aim for seven if we can yeah. get our act together. Right. Yeah. So, right. If those people, if there's like one or two or three or five people like, oh my gosh, I never thought of, you know, having these conversations with my white friends, like then we've done our job. Yeah, that's, you know, that's something that Paul and I have grown a lot with and talked about that idea of centering ourselves versus not. And I, I, I agree, the more you do that work, the, the more I have felt that comfort as well. I think that's a good word to it, just because the comfort of the the need and, and and knowing because of our lived experiences of how important it really is. And if someone addresses you about that or is like, Hey, are you centering yourself too much? Like having more of a conversation about that, like, Hey, let's talk about that. And, and you know, yeah. and I have, I have my, my thoughts as to why this is important. My experiences, but I, I want to hear what you think and why. And I really believe like those conversations I, will have a healthy outcome of like, okay, yeah, you know, that maybe we could both learn from one another as the best way to do it. But I've never had, honestly, a conversation where at the end, there's still like, no, you, this is not needed, actually, you know? Well, and I love that, Ken, and, and, you know, you bring up an important aspect of this work, I think, is, okay, you know, you you see this probably, you know, you've probably seen this, I always kind of chuckle when someone, usually a white person will say something like, well, my anti-racist educator said, right, and then they'll say whatever their Mm anti-racist educator, and on one hand, it's like, great, a white person, and presumably it's a, you know, person of color, you know, presumably a, a black person, right, that's great, like, white people should hire and pay and, and learn from, you know, black folks doing this work, and whenever I hear that, and I've, I've heard it in various forms over the, especially over the last couple of years, right? My anti-racist educator, like, oh, you're one anti-racist educator who's just funneling everything in your one perspective, right? I, I, I worry a little bit about that. And so the reason I bring that up is because it's easy to, especially online, but not just online, it's easy to weaponize truth and it's easy to weaponize mm. perspectives. And so I've found as being, you know, pretty vocal, pretty active, pretty, you know, that any little thing that maybe is perceived as off or wrong or a mistake, whether it actually is or not, it's easier just to attack and and intimidate under the guise of criticism than it is to actually have a, have a conversation. 
because my perspective is like, hey, thanks for thanks for sharing that perspective. Tell me more, right? And you can see pretty quickly who is actually interested in having that conversation and who's not. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, they're not. And so I always say, like, I'm interested in having conversations with people who are interested in having conversations. Because if they're not, you know, whatever the context is, whatever the relationship is, whatever the dynamic is, it's not going to go anywhere. Because then it becomes all about, you know, politics. And I always say my work shifted probably about 10 years ago when I shifted from this work being about humanity with political implications as opposed to being about politics with human implications. Hmm. Hmm. And that shift really opened up the possibilities for me. Hmm. And I, I see a lot of folks kind of in that, in that ladder, right? Like, don't you get it? Don't, if we don't do this by tomorrow, it's like, yes. And let's remember, as you said earlier, like we're all humans. Let's have that human conversation. It's really important. Yeah. You know, and one point that you got into that I think is really interesting and important is that proximity to mm-hmm. Black folks, Indigenous folks, people of color, you know, even for men struggling with traditional masculinity, it could be women, mm-hmm. like, you know, your proximity to others, other identities and lived experiences, because the power of dehumanization is very real. Like if if you really do have or build relationships with others who are different than you, it really does change the way you look at it. Well, my question around that is, I, I think a lot of white folks struggle with that because they don't have natural relationships or are, find themselves in natural situations where they may be able to create a relationship with someone who is different than them. And there's the other side of it, of this like importance of doing the identity work before you go into these to, you know, help with the burden. And I really like how you say awakening all of myself. So like, how can you, you know, awaken yourself, all of yourself before, so you're prepared to have these cross racial, Mm -hmm. cross identity relationships. So I guess my question is, you know, what would you say to folks who are, are like, you know, I don't have any many people of color in my workplace. I don't, I don't, I live in a very white neighborhood. I, I'm struggling to, to even like find this connection and proximity. And, uh, you know, how can I do that when I do try to make those cross identity relationships, which is extremely important? How can I assure that I'm ready for that? Right. And so that we don't bring in that burden. Yeah. I mean, again, great kind of question or set of questions and, and very complex and, you know what I'll say is uh, it's it's hard and it's and it's challenging and it, you know it becomes this meta conversation in a way. In fact, someone asked me once I was facilitating a group a couple of years ago, and she said, "Well, do you do you intentionally go try to make you know friends with black people?" And this was in like a group of white people, and there were, I don't know six or eight of us. And I said to the group, "I said, well, yeah, I do." Now I don't. I mean, I'm sharing it now with you and, you know, the 7 million listeners who are listening, but I don't, that's not part of my platform or my agenda. Like, hey, everyone go and because that's like patronizing. That's, you know, all the things, right? Like who says that a black person wants to be friends with me, right? Or yeah. you or, or, you know, or Paul or anyone, right? So I think what it is, is about, I wouldn't say you have to do your personal work before. So it's not like a do this, then this, mm. but there is like a like an overlapping interweaving thing of constant reassessment and self-reflection and 
and really getting as clear as you can around why that is important to you to have friends and relationships with people from different backgrounds. Yeah. And it's always evolving. It's always going to change. It's always, you know, just the dynamics are changing. But if you have a foundation of like, this is important to me because I care about these issues or these people or these politics or whatever it is, then you're connecting as humans with, with common interest. And yes, you're aware of race and, and the, the factors of it. So it's not like you're just going like, I don't see color. Like that's, that's stupid, right? But it doesn't become about race. It becomes about connection and trust and relationships. And when you build that, then you can have those conversations about race and racism and what's going on. Because, you know, if you think about like these, these frameworks around, there are three that come to mind. One is Michelle Kim. So she wrote the book, The Wake Up, and she talks about this, this concept of compassionate criticality, right? How do we be critical of what's going on in the world, but with compassion, right? And those aren't contradictory things. They're, they're both end. Similarly, and this is more of a kind of a management uh, principle, but I think it applies here is Kim Scott's uh, radical candor, right? How, and she's talking about managers and direct reports, so it's a little bit different context, but I think it pulls to this conversation. If I come up to you and, you know, you're a black person, I say, hey, hey, bro, you know, and I try and it's like, who are you? Yeah. We don't have any, we don't have any trust. We don't have any connection. I don't know you. Why should I believe, you, you know, like, how do you build that trust? Just like you would with any relationship, with any friend, with any, you know, just anyone, right? Then... When it does come to having, you know, like on a day like today, the first day back at work after a mass shooting of black people that was very intentionally, clearly racially motivated, right? If I'm a white person, I haven't, haven't done any of that kind of built, you know, relationship building. And I go, hey, you know, tell me how you're feeling about, you know, then people are, just, you know, black people are like, screw you, dude. Don't, don't come talk to me like that. But if I've done my work and I have a sense of who I am and what's going on in the world, and I've also done, you know, my, my cultural fluency work, so I have a little bit of context on why it might be different, not might be, why it is different for Black people than it is for me on a day like today, then I can enter into these conversations with non-attachment, with no agenda, but with genuine just, hey, I just want you to know I see you and I'm here for you if you need it. Boom. Yeah. And then it's up to them to decide, right? And so I think a lot of it is, I don't want to say misplaced, but it's its like this nervous energy around like, I don't know how to behave around black people. Like, you know, that kind of idea, right? which is unfortunate. And that kind of links to dehumanization too, because it, you know, it's, totally. Like, totally. it's like, you know, how do you talk to your friends or, you know, anyone yeah. I really think that's important. And I, I really like that point about the, you know, the common interests. And as you do this work, you know, you, you, you just, it really opens up your worldview so much and it does just kind of naturally create different opportunities and relationships that are natural and they're not forced. Cause otherwise it could be, you know, you could fall into tokenism. You could fall into mm-hmm. all sorts of like really unhealthy. And that's like, you know, and a part of like the, the process of becoming anti-racist there are those traps almost along the way. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, now I'm going to try to make a bunch of friends with people who are different, look different than me, you know, black people. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's like comes off as inauthentic, but 
if you just totally. like do the work and you're, you know, it just naturally opens so many different doors. So I think that's a really helpful way to look yeah. at it. Well, and so, one of the challenges is having these, cause you know, I, this is, again, it's a, it's a meta conversation. It's challenging because here we are talking about how really like we shouldn't be talking about it and we just go do the work. So like, it's, it's kind of, you get what I'm getting at? It's like, but I think we need to, to surface these thoughts and these conversations so that then people can go and just go about their business and, and build these relationships kind of quietly without it being a, a performance or something that needs to be recognized. Right. And then all of a sudden you, I mean, all of a sudden, but over time you're like, yeah, it's just normal. Yeah. My, my norm has shifted. I know that's what happened for me over the last 25 years. So Jared, can you do some real time live coaching for me? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. It's so funny you brought that up because literally today I went to a few individuals, a few black men who work in my organization and in an extremely awkward, you know, uh, weird way, I went up to them and said, Hey, just want to check in on you. How you doing? I hear you. I see you. And these are, these are individuals who I know pretty well. It's not like it's the first time I've ever talked to them. But I don't, I don't know if there was a foundation of trust. And the results were mixed. One person would seem genuinely like, thank you for coming to me. Another one was a little like, you could tell he's a little bit weird. Like, this is weird. So just get, what would you say? How, coach me. Yeah, <laughs> what would you no. say to someone if you're in a coaching situation and just, you know. So, you know. no, thank you for your vulnerability and asking for that. And, you know. Again, I always say my perspective is one perspective. Um, this is what's worked for me and what I've observed and learned from others and stuff. Is this this difference between being invested in and attached to outcomes? So in this case, you know, the outcome, I don't know what it might be, right? It might be a positive response or or a thank you or a you know, any response, right? And so how do we sit with that uncertainty and trust in the integrity of our intention? Mm, yeah. And I think people who do D&I work and anti-racism work, you know, this concept of, of, of intent versus impact is a big thing. It's kind of like DEI 101, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion 101, right? You know, our intentions, you know, our intention was to blah, 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 but the impact was that, it, you know, ABC. And so that's an, an important thing for people to understand. And I think sometimes there's it's underappreciated that actually intentions do matter, like intentionality matters. So if you genuinely feel that you care for these people and you're not just being performative, you're not just trying to like look like you care, or if you you know you don't really know them, or you haven't had any kind of relationship, but if you're genuinely like, hey, I care about these people, I know them well enough, you know whatever the, if you're texting them, Hey, we've texted before, right? If that's all there and you're genuine and it's a, a message that's not putting extra burden on them to respond or teach you or, you know, then yeah. to me, that is, you know, that is okay. Now someone else might come on and have, you know, a, a different, different opinion, especially, you know, a black person or another person of color. But to me, that's what helps me is I sent several messages today because um, I didn't actually hear about this till till last night, you know, about the Buffalo shooting. I'm like, okay, how do I want to say this? And I just said, hey, I know there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on in the world right now. I just want you to know I see you and I'm thinking of you and I'm here for you, period. Few people have responded, few people haven't, but not getting in our head about, oh, why didn't they respond? Should I have said this? Did I say something wrong? Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. 
who knows, right? But I trust that I, I'm, it's actually a genuine communication because I do care about them and I consider them friends. So I don't know if that yeah. helps. It, it does. And I, you know, I really believe that, you know, our intention when we do something, do act, it'll never be 100% this intention, right? So for example, if I'm honest with myself, did I genuinely, genuinely care about these individuals? Absolutely. Right. Was there a little bit of me thinking like, this is the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Was there a little bit of me that it was sort of what Resma talks about, like that soothing, like I feel anxious. And so I'm going to go to this black person and, and do this right thing. And they're going to say, thank you. And then I'm going to feel better about myself. Yeah, there's probably a little bit of that too. Right. But, th- but just because there's little bits and it's who knows what percentage, you know, how much of it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was saying in my head. The percentages, you know, as long as I've, and I thought through it intentionally. And there's actually one person I didn't go talk to because I didn't have that relationship. But but I think as white folks, sometimes we we hesitate to act because mm-hmm. we think our intentions have to be absolutely perfectly sound. And yeah. I just don't think that's how humans work, right? There'll yeah. always be some intermixed ego part of it or mm-hmm. selfish intentions, right? So we just have to be okay with the imperfection of our intentions because otherwise we'll do nothing, right? And totally. of course, there's the fear of making mistakes too. Um, because like, I love how you said the focus on outcomes. Will the outcome be perfect every time? Oh, probably not, right? And one person might react completely different from another person, right? Yeah. So yeah, just, yep. Yeah, thank you. You know, I just want to throw that out there because it just was like, <laughs> wow, that's exactly what I did today. And, you know, um, it was it was uncomfortable, it was awkward. Were my intentions perfect? Probably not, but but I'm learning. So yeah. that's, that's the, you're very thing. welcome. And, you know, I appreciate you, yeah. you know, asking for, for some, for some live coaching and, and yeah. trusting me to, you know, to provide that, you know, here yeah. we are uh, again in front of these millions of listeners, millions, <laughs> millions and millions, yeah, poured my heart out to millions of people. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you captured it, Paul, I think my friend, uh, Jill, who, you know, I think you would enjoy actually talking with her on the show. Um, the Jill Nagel. Yep. Yeah. She, okay. Yeah. Yeah, she talks. She, you know, I don't think this is her phrase, but I, I kind of associate it with her. Like, stumble forward, mm-hmm. because we're gonna stumble, and we, mm-hmm. you know, it, it almost should be expected, but not mm-hmm. like expected, you know, at you know five thirty seven on a Monday afternoon. But like, it's <laughs> gonna be expected, and just knowing, like, oh, okay, like being ready to learn, being ready to ha- receive feedback, being ready to to get, you know, criticized, being ready, you know, to be, uh, I would argue, like in my case, like intimidated, you know, disguised as criticism sometimes, right? And just absorbing all that and filtering it and deciding if and how and when and by whom you're going to, what what you're going to do with all that feedback. Because I think, you know, you're touching on this I would argue the core of this work for white folks who are who are newer to this conversation is pushing through the discomfort, right? And the discomfort really is around perception. I've never really done this work before. What are my friends going to think? Hmm. You know, if I if I stand up at a meeting and say X Y Z, what are the colleagues who I've been you know hanging out with for the last two years going to think when they've never heard me say that before? So it's like this new, almost like a skill, right? But skill's not the right word. It's like a mindset. And how do we get to the place where our concern for what's right, for the people who are most marginalized and affected every day is greater than our concern for our social capital? And that's really what it's about to me. Because once you get past that, 
not saying there aren't, you know, days and challenges and relationships and events and stuff where, you know, where you don't do it perfectly. But for the most part, like now it's like, you know what? I don't care if you don't get why I care about this. I do. And it doesn't mean our friendship has to end. Although in some cases it has, I've ended friendships because of stuff like this. But for the most part, I'd rather, you know, there's an old country song. Like I'd rather have you, you know, have you hate me for who I am than love me for who I'm not. You know, it's like, Hey, if you don't get why, you know, I think this, then let's talk about it. And if you're still just unwilling to, to understand and have a discussion and a conversation about it, then we have bigger problems in our relationship than, than this. That's truly genuine, you know, and, and and what you said that is sticking out to me that I think if everyone can get to this place after, you know, decades of work, right. To probably get there (laughs) where you, where you sent the text messages and you heard back from a few, you didn't from a few and you didn't overthink it, you know, and you were like, and you're like, Hey, you know what, this was important to me, or this is what I thought was right. And it really was important. It was genuine. I really meant it. And and to like not overthink it and be like, Oh, did I mess that up today? Like that's, that's some that I'm not, I can tell you I'm not there yet. Right. Like, and that's, that's a powerful place to be. Well, you know what, you know what that, thank you, Ken. And you know where that, where that comes from has nothing specifically to do with anti-racist work, but I think it's a huge part is, is 20 years of mindfulness practice of, of equanimity, of sitting with uncertainty, of being okay in ambiguity of non-attachment, which isn't synonymous with, you know, not caring. Right. And so, I mean, we didn't get a chance to really delve into that side of things, but that's for me personally. And I think for a lot of other folks can be a big part of this work to address just some of the interpersonal dynamics and relationship dynamics around, you know, how and why one may or may not be, you know, received as well as we'd like, et cetera. So, you know, maybe for, maybe for the next episode, uh, we yes. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that down to get you for a future episode. I mean, mindfulness gets a lot of shtick. In fact, I just finished a book a couple of days ago called, you know, what's wrong with mindfulness and then in parentheses oh. and what isn't. And so, you know, it's this big consumerism thing and it's, you know, it's, it's been bastardized from its original intent. So there are lots of, you know, challenges and, and, and definitely legitimate criticisms and on a, just a interpersonal and intrapersonal level. It's been fundamental for me, not only my anti-racist and, and you know, uh, equity work, but just in my life. I have 13 year old twins, you know, I mean, yeah. enough said, right? So like, it's just the way I navigate the world, you know, is centered in that equanimity and not being easily pushed off course by little trifles. Well, our millions of listeners have heard it. Are we going to have a, we're going to have a mindfulness uh, episode with Jared Carroll in the future, because clearly we could, man, we could just keep talking. There's so many important things. I've learned a lot from our short time together and just talking with you. And Paul and I are very grateful that you joined us. And I know that our listeners have learned a lot as well from you. So thank you so much. You know, I wish that we could keep on talking, but (laughs) listeners get sick of listening to me talk. I can say that. So we'll just end it now. And we really appreciate it, Jared. And I want everybody Again, we're going to link Jared's book, A White Guy Confronting Racism, in the notes and his website. So please do check that out. Check out his work because, as you can see, you know, it's really helpful stuff. So thank you, Jared, so much. Yeah, you're very welcome, Ken and Paul. Thank you for having me on and, and thank you for having the show and doing this work. I appreciate you both. Thank you. Thanks, Jared. So, what did we tell y'all? 
Great conversation with Jared Carroll. Again, huge thanks to Jared. What an excellent conversation. You know, what Paul and I are gonna do, this is new because we don't have enough new stuff for you, all of our listeners out there. We're always coming out with new stuff and we have something else new we're gonna do. In addition to that new YouTube channel, which you can go and check out the video of Paul, Jared, and my conversation together. Another new thing we're gonna do is we're gonna write up our takeaways from the conversation and post it on our website. So you can go on the blog page of our website and just see, we're not we're not gonna like write novels for y'all. So you're just gonna see kind of our takeaways from our conversations. Cause that'll be a really nice way for us too, you know, to, to look back and really pull out some tangible stuff to be able to share. So, you know, go check that out with our conversation from Jared. Cause as you heard, there are a lot of takeaways that we have. Yeah, mini blogs, right? You're gonna <laughs> write some mini blogs, you're short and me, sweet. You're telling me you have another branding opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> no shortage that's all you had to say paul another branding opportunity mini blogs actually that's a good idea we should yeah no one yeah i think a mini blog i'm liking this let's keep thinking about it i'll start i'll start mocking up some logos and we'll get a good little branding <laughs> set going <laughs> thanks everybody as always i already said it but check out the youtube channel go to our website themodernwhiteman.com sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop again check out some of these takeaways in the blog section and until next time let's keep learning stay humble and do the work